Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. When you think of startup tech companies, software is probably the first thing that comes to mind. But scientific breakthroughs are still coming in the world of atoms, and that's what venture capital firm Prime Movers Lab invests in. To give us a sense of their vision for the future, the VC firm put together a breakthrough science roadmap to describe what a life of abundance in the year 2050 might be like. In this episode of Political Economy, I'm joined by Ramez Nam and Christy Iacomini from Prime Movers Lab to discuss that uplifting vision of tomorrow and how startups are working to realize it. Ramez is a computer scientist and chief futurist at Prime Movers Lab, while Christy is an aerospace engineer and vice president of engineering. Ramez and Christy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thank Jim. you for having us. I suppose what got me interested in this roadmap to begin with, especially over the past few years, there's been a constant criticism. I'm going to say Silicon Valley, but obviously I mean more than just the Bay Area. I mean sort of the entire tech sector. Social media is trivial. Uh, where's the flying cars? You gave us Twitter instead. But there's been a, a, a deep criticism that American technology doesn't do anything really important what got me interested in the roadmap was that there seem to be some important things in this roadmap that might happen, companies are thinking about, companies are working on, that actually could create like kind of a cool future. I don't know. Uh, why don't you tell me about how you got, why you guys are doing it? Yeah. Well, uh, to address that perspective, uh, the reason I joined Prime Movers Lab is because we do have a focus on hardware. So much so that we aren't just funding, we're actually cultivating and, and helping grow these companies. As an engineer, I didn't know anything about VC funding and whatnot, but I'm super excited about our vision of, of funding meaningful technology that, that is high risk, but man, the payoffs are going to be fantastic. And that's one of the things I was excited to explore in our, in our map, our roadmap. I would guess that it's hard enough to make money in the world that um, that investors should just focus on whatever they think is going to be potentially the most profitable, whatever it is, whether it's hardware, software. But what you're saying here is that your is that your firm's focusing on a particular kind of technology. So there must be some some deep sort of you know ethos in what you're doing is why you're all focusing on that. That's right. Our motto at Prime Movers Lab as a venture firm is that we invest in breakthrough science to improve the lives of billions of people. So we're talking about fundamental issues of humanity, clean energy, clean water, growing enough food, uh, providing you know better transportation options, and things that are very aspirational, human augmentation, slowing down the aging process, helping people that are paralyzed connect to uh, being able to talk and communicate again, venturing out into space. So we're really, in a sense, trying to create the Star Trek future. And from a, a capitalist return standpoint, we think that also makes a lot of sense. We think the world's greatest problems or humanity's greatest aspirations are also incredible investment opportunities if we do it right. And one of our secret weapons really is Christy and her team. Unlike most venture funds that are strictly business people, we have a lot of great business people, all of us are. Uh, we have a team that Christy leads. Christy was formerly at Blue Origin, running their 
lunar uh, landing program. And her team is full of scientists and engineers. So we have the chops to actually assess technology and science at a deep level, as well as assessing the founders, the business plan, the market, and so on, and think we can deploy capital very effectively, uh, not just in social media, not just in you know the next uh, app to find a pet sitter, but in not no no offense anybody that's looking for a pet sitter, <laughs> but in things that we think address like much more fundamental uh, global challenges and human aspirations. Are people aware? that that kind of future is possible. And the reason I ask it is I recently wrote this uh, piece about a uh, holiday visit I took at the, uh, uh, the Smithsonian here in Washington, D.C. They have a big fancy new, new exhibit called Futures. But it seemed to be very much stuck like in the 1970s where, you know, capitalism was, ru- was ruining the world, technology is ruining the world, progress was a net negative, and I was very disappointed. And so I saw that, and then I came across the roadmap. I'm like, this is what should have been at that that exhibit. So, so there is a question mark at the end of all this, which is, are people aware that there's some cool stuff cooking out there that could actually, we might actually be able uh, to do? Well, I do think the optimism has been leached out of media and the news. There's a, a saying that in the news business, if it bleeds, it leads. You get a lot more attention by engaging the, the amygdala of the human brain, the part that looks for threats and anxiety that gets you clicks, it gets you ad views and so on. Uh, and despite that, the world overall has kept getting better for decades. So part of our goal in publishing the Breakthrough Science Roadmap is to show why we're optimistic about the future. And we also find remarkably that that works extremely well when talking to investors. So we have to get investors into our fund to have the capital to deploy to startups. And we find that uh, we have a very unique proposition. Very few of the investors that are looking to us in venture venture funds see something that is looking at deep science and fundamental breakthroughs that can improve humanity and is optimistic about not just making more money off of ad clicks, but fundamentally improving the world. And we find that people love that. Actually, would love to be part of that. Christy, you have you, you you worked at Blue Origin, and do people just not know that there is a lot happening in a way that hasn't happened in a half century uh, uh, in this country? I mean, give, give, given your background, I, I think people should be pretty optimistic about what we're doing and should be excited by space in a way they haven't been, at least since the space shuttle, uh, but further back than that. Yeah, I think this is a, one of the most exciting times in space right now. The space economy is booming. There's so many wonderful opportunities to be building out space infrastructure, not just for the sake of the, the space geeks and the, and the fellow Trekkies. It's, it's helping with national security. It's helping monitor climate change. It's, it's building out uh, a path to resources uh, on the moon and asteroids, it's incredibly exciting. And there's so much activity going on right now. Uh, it it makes me sad if the event that you went to didn't do a better job highlighting that. Uh, maybe they kept their focus not as as far into the future as, as we would like to see. I think that's our job is to, is to make people see all these opportunities. And it's our job to identify the ones that really have promise where the science has been retired and, and there's an opportunity. It's a, it's a risk. And that's why we're excited about helping and providing funding to these entrepreneurs that can make that really fantastical future happen. And we intend to accelerate it. 
All right. Well, let, let's take a look at this roadmap. Uh, it has a variety uh, of subjects, all of which are super interesting. Energy. Uh, that's a biggie. Uh, as we're doing this, having a, a big problem with energy in Europe right now. Uh, what is exciting and excites your firm uh, in the energy sector? Jim, that's a such a near dear to my heart. And, you know, from the last time I was here on the podcast, I'm very bullish on what's happening in clean energy. The cost of solar panels per watt of power is up by a factor of 500 since 1975. We've gone from 10 years ago, clean energy being more expensive than fossil everywhere on Earth, to now being the cheapest source of new electrons everywhere, almost everywhere on Earth. At the same time, we've got big opportunities and big challenges in solving energy storage. We haven't totally cracked that yet. So that's an area where we've got active investments and where we see a lot happening. And we still think there's a last, uh, you can get a certain fraction of the grid power from solar and wind and storage and, and so on. And there's a huge opportunity still for uh, new technologies, whether it's advanced geothermal or even nuclear fusion, where we've made investments. And those are the sorts of things where it is really a venture, where you've got to go in and take some risk, but the the opportunities that have been brighter than they are right now for uh, radical breakthroughs in clean energy that drop the cost while preventing pollution. Not to keep coming about this exhibit, because it really drove me crazy. I think the only mention of nuclear was a button they had from the 70s saying, uh, solar employs, nuclear destroys. Rez, you've, I know you've written a lot about solar. First of all, how real do you think the nuclear fusion stuff is? And most people think of geothermal. They... I don't think they see they they know about some of the big advances happening in that sector and how big that sector could be. Yeah, I'd say nuclear fusion is still speculative. But whereas uh, in the past we thought it was always fifty years in the future, and and every year it was still fifty years in the future, and it was only big government projects that took tens of billions of dollars that had a chance. Now there's a dozen, fifteen startups out there that are building uh, fusion reactors on a smaller scale. They're a fail fast mentality. The physics looks promising. The cost of computation to model these things has come down. And so, you know, is it right around the corner? No, but it is possible that we will see net energy gain. A future reactor gets more energy out than put in this decade. And that we'll see commercial fusion reactors actually enter the grid next decade. Is that guaranteed? No, but the upside if that happens is so enormous that it's drawn billions of dollars of venture capital just into fusion companies in the last couple of years. Why would fusion be important in a way that, in a way that's be more important than traditional nuclear reactors? And I know there's been a lot of advance in, in small modular reactors where that technology yeah. might be going. That's an area we're also interested in. But I think, look, current uh, fusion fission reactors have been getting more expensive to build instead of cheaper, while solar and wind and batteries have been getting cheaper. So we need a reset of some sort. So small modular fission reactors that you can make in factories and mass manufacture have a chance to have those learning curves, that, that ability to get cheaper to make more of them. Fusion is at a whole nother level. So why is either fission or fusion important? Because it can be challenging with just renewables to get to 100% of the energy, maybe get to 50, 60, 70%, but you've got like long periods in winter when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining and it's just tough. And you've got places that are very geographically compact and don't have the land area to deploy a lot of solar and wind. So some sort of clean, firm, baseload power, clean, firm, clean power that you can decide when to produce and when not, would, it's very compact, would be very useful. Fusion is also unique versus fission in that fusion reactors don't have any runaway scenarios because you have to keep putting energy back in to keep pulsing the reaction in most of these designs in order to have it keep going. So there's no chain reaction that can have a runaway event. It's the kind that 
captivates us on television and makes us uh, very afraid of this. So fusion is a chance to reset the conversation with the public and maybe allay some of these fears and start a whole new conversation that allows us to actually deploy some of this clean energy. I don't naturally think of energy as a, as a sector for for startups. I think of energy because, you know, we were talking about nuclear reactors. They're big. They're expensive. I think of that as something being done by big companies that have been around for a long time. Those, you know, I think of, you know, we think oil companies are these big utilities. They're the folks that do that do nuclear or do geothermal, not so what, what do I mean? What are these? What are these smaller? These startups? These young, early stage companies? What are they bringing to the table? What kind of tech? What kind of technologies or aspects of these problems are they working on? Yeah, well, I'd say first of all, think of you know one of the most valuable companies in the world right now is Tesla. Tesla is an energy company. Tesla is a a batter, battery plus chip on wheels, more or less, and software. Uh, so and that's something that started off as impossible, but. Startups, unlike big government organizations or big corporations, have this way of tapping into technology that's getting exponentially cheaper over time. And because the startup mentality is fail fast, try something, see if it works, move forward, experiment, that has a fundamentally different and better uh, likelihood of producing innovation than do big bang projects that, you know, give me two decades and I'll produce something at $10 billion. That's how government projects in this space uh, and how big corporate uh, projects happen as well. They have a much higher risk tolerance than the government projects that have to answer to taxpayers, right? And I think also you asked the question about, um, you think about big government having to own these, these types of innovations and, and, and big projects, but not only Tesla, but SpaceX is another example where you don't have to um, do that anymore because technology has evolved so much and government maybe spawned the original research that made these innovations available to others, but now entrepreneurs can pick it up and run with it. I wonder if a lot of people, when they think about, you know, the modern tech sector, they heard stories about, you know, the Apple story, you know, you know started in a garage or you know, the Facebook story, started in a dorm room. I mean, are you, are you doing nuclear research in the garage or your dorm room? The initial phases are sometimes done in an academic lab. They often come out of academia and it is government funded, but often the, the initial work is, you know, computer simulation. Uh, and then that can spin off. And fortunately, some parts of government, some universities have uh, great programs to help spin off IP that's developed there where the government and the university had a piece of it. Uh, but venture capitalists can come in and put more money in to take a risk and start from a couple of people uh, and then scale up. And then, and then, of course, there are really great facilities out there where these startup companies can can prove out their initial stuff in a safe environment with with good measurements to to validate the data that they're collecting. And as they then uh, garner more capital, they start to build out their own facilities, and then that's where the growth of the the private company starts to really take off. Uh, another sector on the roadmap: infrastructure and transportation. What's going on there? That's uh, that's exciting. Um, we, we really think that uh, we are developing tools that will provide us better and more efficient and healthier buildings. Uh, we're looking into uh, abundant clean water. Uh, we want, you know, we've been talking about clean energy, of course, uh, and to augment information exchange. And we, uh, you know, when we look at the things that we put on our roadmap, uh, we were pointing to desalination, seeing that happen by the 30s. 2030s, uh, floating cities and towns by the 2040s. 
wireless bandwidth increasing to 90,000 gigawatts per second per device by the 50s. So there's, there's really some uh, uh, infrastructure, it, it covers a lot. Um, transportation, obviously, uh, that's where my background is with, with aerospace. Uh, we see hypersonic uh, aviation in the mid thirties, super excited about that, that near earth asteroid mining, possibly in the 40s, and lunar helium-3 mining for fusion energy by the 50s. One of the, you know, sort of one of the early visions of the sort of the post-war futurist was taking not rockets to the moon, but taking rockets to other cities, sort of very, very fast travel uh, around the world, you know, from, um, you know, New York to Berlin in 90 minutes. Um, is that what we're talking about? Are we talking supersonic? You mentioned hypersonic. Are these, is it basically you know, uh, rocket travel, but to different places on Earth as opposed to the moon. Yeah, yeah, we would call that hypersonics rather than rocket travel. But yeah, getting to the other side of the Earth in an hour or two, right? Uh, we have one company that, that we're funding called Venus Aerospace, and their, their slogan is, be home for dinner. We also have a company, uh, Boom Aerospace, it's probably a shorter term, that's making a supersonic jet airliner uh, the first private one since, actually the first private one ever, but uh, sort of a Concorde on a much, much better version. It's more fuel efficient, quiet, and United has actually put in an order for multiple of their aircraft. Uh, you, you mentioned the floating cities, and I was thinking of that because there's a recent New York Times story about built, making Manhattan bigger, like adding a huge, I think they're going to call it Manhattana or something. Where, where would we build floating cities exactly? You know, there's there's several very, very crowded coastal cities and they're running out of room to expand into the surrounding land. So that provides um, uh, an ability out in a harbor to expand uh, real estate uh, for their communities. Yeah, so the, one of our portfolio companies, uh, Oceanics, has signed a deal with the city of Busan in South Korea that's very constrained uh, to start actually building uh, floating real estate to expand the, the footprint of that city that otherwise can't grow. Uh, Mark Andreessen, he wrote this essay, uh, like we need to build again. And one, one, one of the things he wrote in that essay was about uh, completely automated factories, basically no humans. And we could, you know, and so we could bring back a lot of this manufacturing for overseas. It could be done in the United States uh, because it could be done so cheaply because it would all be done by robots. Is that the kind of advances you're talking about in manufacturing? I don't know that we we have a, a conviction around a, the, the end all be all is going to be all robots. I think there's probably applications where having uh, a partnership between human uh, tended spaces and robots is also is also good. You can see one of our startups uh, is not fully automated, but it's somewhat automated. It's Diamond Age that uses robotics to accelerate the building of buildings of homes. You know, in the US, housing prices are, are out of control in a lot of places. And there's a lot of reasons that are regulatory as well as technology, but uh, building homes is still a very much a assembly process that happens on site. Uh, so uh, one of the places we think is very exciting is turning that more into manufacturing process. How touchy are people about innovations uh, in agriculture, we remember the you know the, the controversy about GMO, uh, controversy about genetically modified insects. There seems to be to be a, a special concern because people think that's going to be in the environment, that's going to change the environment. Uh, it'll be out of it'll be out of the control of human beings. Is that a trickier area to invest in? 
it, it can be, you know, some of our investments like Upward Farms is an indoor agriculture company that's really about, you know, managing the microbiome of soil in a way that you can only do if you have complete control over it. And the value prop for them, their products are sold in Whole Foods, the value prop for them is customers love local, fresh uh, food that they that was literally picked that day. And so that's a huge opportunity. You know, that really works in, in leafy greens and fish and maybe a few other things. It doesn't probably work in, in row crops like corn, wheat, and soy. Uh, we do see there's a new raft of genetic technologies that don't add any new genes to a plant whatsoever, but change how often a gene is expressed or maybe silence a gene that's in there. And those look like they will not be regulated as GMOs in the US at least and in some other countries because it's not adding any foreign material from any other species into the plant. It's just sort of slightly tweaking the activity of current genes. Uh, and so that's an area we have not invested in yet, but I think we're very interested in that. We have to feed more people on planet earth. We have to, uh, you know, you, consuming meat right now is we all, a lot of us like meat, but there's a human craving for high density food, but it's very damaging to the environment. So I think alternative proteins made of plants or technology are very interesting to us, as well as just ways to get more food off of less land. And to your point, we are sensitive to the unintended consequences. Uh, with, with, with our science team, we charge ourselves to ask those types of questions. And given that we look at across many sectors, we have the, the skills um, and backgrounds to be thinking about what those unintended consequences could be. I'm curious, what are the backgrounds of the people who work uh, at the firm? You mentioned you're an aerospace engineer, if that's the right way to describe it. What are, what are the other backgrounds of other folks there? Right. So we have a, a systems engineer who also has some uh, a lot of uh, aerospace uh, experience. We have a chemical engineer. We have an electrical engineer. We have a neuroscientist. And, and, and we, we're standing the team to have more uh, folks in bio uh, anything bio, <laughs> uh, human augmentation, longe longevity, and a mechanical engineer. Which which brings us to human. You mentioned human augmentation. Um, what's uh, what might be coming, and what are what are your sort of uh, your companies working on? Well, we we bundle everything in health in that area, and we've got multiple uh, companies uh, in that space. We definitely look at neurotech technology that helps the brain. One of our companies, Paradromics is uh, using brain implants to help people that are paralyzed or locked in uh, communicate, walk again. We've got another announcement uh, we made quite recently of a company that does assistive reality, sort of an augmented reality headset for people that are paralyzed to help them communicate to the outside world. Uh, we actually were looking closely at the area of psychedelics, of uh, new molecules based off of psychedelics. We've seen this evidence that compounds like psilocybin or ketamine can alleviate depression and PTSD. And we're looking at, uh, as many investors are, ways to make derivatives of those that are have lower side effects, but that can address mental health issues like depression, fear of death, PTSD, uh, that aren't addressed by current uh, pharmaceuticals today. We're just about the end. So let me ask each of you the same question. Uh, given your interest, what you're working on, uh, what the firm's working on, what particular gets each of you sort of uh, the most excited or feel like he has the most potential? I'll let, you, I'll let you frame it in any way you want. Oh my gosh, that's so hard because we are touching on so many exciting things. Um, I, I guess I could speak to one of our focus right now, and that is looking at orbital debris and and trying to figure out, is there a way to 
accelerate ownership and accountability and cleanup because if we don't, then some of these other wonderful innovations and infrastructure that we're able to, to take advantage of in the space environment could, could be destroyed. Well, I think the, the concern seems to have kind of broken through more to the general public. Is that because the problem's gotten a lot worse or just enough, enough high-profile things have happened that you know, it's kind of you know, gotten through the filter where the media has recognized it? Or is that problem getting worse of just there's too much space junk? Yeah, no, I think it's both. It's definitely getting worse. The numbers are insane. Uh, We're looking at uh, a half a billion little pieces that we aren't even tracking. And and, and they can take out satellites, which if you take out a satellite, then, you know, that can have a chain reaction and and take out an entire system. Um, And I do think that there is a lot more activity and it's going to get worse because of the increased activity. Ramez, that's the, basically that question I just asked Christy. Let me ask you uh, what either gets you interesting or you're focusing a lot or, again, however way you want to frame it. I remain really excited about the whole space of climate tech uh, and things adjacent to that, including food and water. You know, we have this massive global problem. Uh, it's a problem we don't have to despair about that we can take action on. Uh, it'll probably be $100 trillion of global investment that will go into uh, reinventing our energy system, our transportation system, our industries that, that emit carbon today. The world's already spending more than $500 billion a year on clean energy and clean transport. We've seen the creation of uh, not just uh, unicorns, unicorns, you know, whatever you, whatever you want to call a, a trillion dollar company, dragons uh, in this space, uh, because the technology is not just required, but it's so much cheaper and better than old fossil fuel technologies. And that's something that I think the world has still barely scratched the surface of. And, you know, as I said, our greatest challenges as a species are also our greatest uh, investment opportunities. Christy Ramez, that was outstanding. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having us. 